0: at this time, I'll invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the book of Romans, chapter 12. <clears throat> I said it last week, but in case you weren't here, my assumption is that you're already hungry because of the time change. We are getting close to lunch, and so I recognize that there's a little bit more hostility in the crowd than usual. And therefore, I will try to be as efficient as I can be in Romans, chapter 12. Uh, It's on page 947 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. But Romans 12 is similar for me in Romans 8 in that Romans 8 is a chapter that is just so full of encouragement in the truths of the gospel. And so when something bad happens or encouragement is needed, Romans 8 is one of the places that I'll go to again and again to mine from the deep riches that are contained therein. Romans 12 is one of the most practical chapters of the Bible. When you're wondering, what is it that God wants me to do? How, how is it possible to know how God would want me to live my life? Romans 12 is about as packed as it gets in instruction. And so it's meaningful in that regard. By the same token, it is both beautiful and impossible by the, what it portrays is what is to be the ordinary Christian life. But you and I can come to it and know for certain after Paul just took 11 chapters summarizing the truths of the gospel, now he begins to turn towards application and say this is what it should look like lived out in your life and mine. So Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice And the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Could you not spend the rest of your life reflecting on the exhortation here for practical living and not exhaust it? There's no sense in reading it that you would maybe by a strong effort, you know, three months in, I could get this down and I could move on to something else. There's enough here for a lifetime of thoughtful consideration. A lifetime of obedience in the same direction that still for us would never get us to the place of attainment but our compass is set which why Paul is only getting to this in chapter 12 because if you and I were to read this in chapter 1 and somehow think we have to do all of these things in order for God to either love us or in order for God to save us we'd say, we're finished. There's no way we could do all of these things, and if we did them, then somehow we could be in a right relationship with God. No, he's taken 11 chapters to talk about what it means to have a restored relationship with God, that it's not by our works, it's not by our righteousness, it's not by our obedience, that it's only by grace, through faith in Christ, through what he's done, that we can have a relationship with him. But having that relationship, what is salvation for? Why did he bring us into his family? Why did he not just leave us all? And now Paul starts to paint the picture of what it is that God wants to do in the hearts and minds of people that have been redeemed. That he wants them to live a certain way. Not to earn his favor or earn his approval or that this is how you get into the family. But now that you're into the family, this is what the family should look like. This is what he desires for all of his children. This is God's will that is good, acceptable, and perfect is how it's described in the beginning of the chapter. And so you might not have been able to be with us from the beginning as we've gone through the book of Romans. And so if you're only joining us today, I apologize because most of this is in the direction of application. And so most of it is convicting. None of us measure up, but none of us need to obey all of this perfectly in order to have this relationship. We do this out of an expression of our thankfulness for what God has done for us. Romans 12 describes what hearts overflowing in thankfulness for salvation now do and how they think and how they live. The first part, if I were to summarize verses one and two, is that worship is supposed to be with the whole of our life. Worship is supposed to be something that we do with the whole of our life. That had been a consistent message of Jesus while he was on the earth and he was preaching messages and interacting with crowds. He was warning people who were very religious, who were going to synagogue and going to service and saying, Don't think just by singing songs that express something that you've actually done it yet, right? We all said together, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, thou and always. Be thou my vision, whatever befall. Be thou my vision, O ruler of all. We all said that. The question that Christ would pose if he was here is how many of us live that way? I mean, what did you just say? Be thou my vision, whatever befall. God, be the focus and the purpose of my life whatever happens this week. Really? Is that my thought? Or am I praying, okay, what do I need to do for you so that this week goes well? I, things haven't been going well. I want things to go a little bit better. What do I need to do for you so that things get a little bit better? That's not what we sang. What we sang was, be thou my vision and I want to look at you and draw source of encouragement and hope from you whatever befall. And so Jesus would say that as he would walk around the earth to the psalms that his people would sing and other people, don't think just by praying something you've actually done it. It's possible for us to pray prayers we don't mean. It's possible for us to sing songs we don't mean. It's possible for us to say things to each other that we won't follow up on. And in the eyes of God, what he desires is integrity in our hearts and in our minds. That what we say we mean, what we say we'll do we do, and that worship isn't something relegated to a specific place and time. I went to worship on a Sunday. But that worship permeates the whole of our lives. That how we talk to our neighbor would require just as much thought and intentionality as what we sang or prayed this morning. But there's not supposed to be a separation between those two things. Yes, there's something unique that happens when we gather together and we're among the corporate body of Christ. But the goal of that is to then infuse the whole of our lives so that it actually transforms the type of people that we are. Whether that's you're a husband or a mother or a neighbor, a coworker, an employer, an employee, whatever it happens to be. The challenge of Christ to all of his followers and then the Apostle Paul is one of those earliest followers to the church is to be transformed in the renewing of our mind And to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our worship. So Paul's pattern had been, up until that time, sacrifices were what you brought to the temple. You brought it with you, you laid it down, the priest took it and he killed it, and in doing it, it made atonement for whatever sin you were coming to confess or was an offering of thanks for the crop that you had that year. And Paul is saying, I'm not asking you anymore to come and to leave something and let it die. I'm asking you to go forth as a living sacrifice. That your whole life is your spiritual worship. So yes, still come and gather, worship, sing and pray, but present the whole of yourself to God as the right response to what he's done and worship him in everything you do. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean pray before you do everything? No. Later, it does say be constant in prayer. It means you could just have an ordinary conversation with your neighbor and don't always have to find a way to bring Jesus into it. It means being an ethical employee. It doesn't always mean leading a Bible study at your place of work before employment starts. But it's that you, in your own thinking and mind, and mind would be transformed to say, this is supposed to be not the place where I bring my sacrifice to earn salvation. No, 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 I can't do that. It's where I hear the good news that salvation's already been provided and I go from this place as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable, discerning what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's what we crave and desire here. Not that any of what we do, either on a Sunday morning or a small group setting or any other setting as a gathered church, that none of that would be a substitute for a life of faith. But that's how we as sinners often think oh, I did this, I messed up here. If I just go do this good thing, maybe somehow that'll all even out. Christ had nothing to do with that. He so, said, no, 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 don't use worship. As the reason why you don't have a good relationship With your brother So much so that in the Sermon on the Mount he said If you come to church and you're about to give a sacrifice And you think of something That someone has against you It would be better to leave the sacrifice And go reconcile with your brother Because no one gets brownie points For lying And saying things They don't mean And God's the one person We can't fake We can hide things from each other, but God is the one person from whom we can't hide anything. And so it's in his kindness that he says, don't try. (laughs) No, instead, seek the renewal and the transformation of your mind that all of life would become an acceptable act of worship. And then if I were to summarize verses 3 through 8, he says, serve with the uniqueness of your gifts. So if we're supposed to worship with the whole of our lives, Here he says to serve within the uniqueness of your gifts. That God has made you as a unique person with unique talents and abilities. No one of us is given all of the gifts. Each of us is given some type of gifting. And God's purpose in that is that we would recognize our need for each other. Not our independence from each other. Well, hey, I'm good at this, so I don't need you. No, no, no. You're good at something, she's good at something, we're all good at something, and we all need each other if we're going to experience the full picture of what God desires for his family. And so part of discerning what is good and acceptable and perfect is then acknowledging, I don't have everything I need to live this out. I just don't. I don't have all of the gifts. I barely have some but if I maintain a relationship in a community of faith with other people and there's a posture of generosity towards one another and sharing with one another, then all of us can be stronger together than we would be individually. And so there's the desire that you, we would worship with the whole of our lives and then also worship in the uniqueness of how God has made us. When I think about the uniqueness of who we are as individuals, one of the ways it was pictured for me was in someone saying, you know, if you're really doing something that flows from your passions in your heart, imagine yourself writing a novel, and what you're trying to do is work out unique ideas that you have. If you were to die before you were able to finish it, no one should be able to finish it. if what you or I are trying to do is copy someone else, we see someone who's famous, someone who's popular and we want to do things like them and we're no longer contributing within who God has made us to be then what we do actually starts to become more predictable (laughs) because we're sacrificing the uniqueness of who we are to try to be someone else, but if we're really operating within who and how God has made us and seeking to give out of that then we should be living in such a way that truly, yes, if and when, and there will be a whenever we're gone, no, we can't be replaced. Someone else might serve in a similar capacity. Someone else might have similar gifts. But when God looks down upon you and me, we are unique individuals to him, gifted to something. And when someone is missing, something is missing. When someone is missing, something is missing that God desires for people to experience. We're not replaceable in that sense. And so at the first token, we wanna think of the whole of our lives as an opportunity to worship. And here we wanna think about the uniqueness of how God has made us. Is it in prophecy? Is it in generosity? Is it in an exhortation? And if we do, then the assumption is we would do it more when we're operating within our loves and passions for how God made us. And we're not sitting there saying, How many more times do I have to do this before I can stop doing this? We're doing what we love to do, and so we keep on doing it. And we're not bitter about doing it. That's what he says. If it's teaching, teach. If it's exhorting, exhorting. If it's contributing, then do it generously. If it's leading with zeal, if it's mercy, with cheerfulness. And so the question is, what is it that you can do in joy? What is it that you love to do that you alone are hardwired to get joy doing? It doesn't mean in the course of your life you won't ever be asked to do things you don't feel comfortable doing. We all will. But that's not meant to be an excuse to not discern what is, makes us uniquely us and what we're gifted at and therefore what we would be excited to do more of if we were only given the opportunity to do more of it. That spurs creativity and ingenuity and passion. When we feel like we're constantly being asked to do what we don't have any sense of gifting or ability to do, it works the other way. It sucks our spirit, it drains our energy, and we don't find joy. And our serving actually then becomes a source of resentment. And Paul would say, wait a minute, if if whatever you're doing, you're starting to make like a list of what everyone else is doing and how they're not doing things. you're probably not functioning according to the counsel of Romans 12. Because if you're doing what you love to do and what you're passionate about and you know what God has hardwired you to do, then you just want to do more of it. If someone else is not doing what they're supposed to do, they might not be. But that doesn't affect your joy. Your ability to lay down at night and think about your heavenly father and know that you're doing what he's made you to do someone else doesn't engage that, it steals their joy, it steals their energy and their zeal, but it doesn't have to steal yours. And so his encouragement is for all of us to serve within the uniqueness of our gifts. And then for me to summarize verses nine through 21, when you read all of these challenges for love to be genuine, to abhor what is evil, to hold fast what is good, on and on and on, he is describing the person of Christ. And so he's encouraging all of us to love with the example of our Savior. So worship with the whole of our lives, serve within the uniqueness of our gifts, and then to love within our minds the example of our Savior. And when you read through it, if you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at all, you can remember where Christ did all of these things. This is what he was like when he was on the earth. His love was genuine. It wasn't fake. He didn't just say things to become popular. He stood up to evil. He hated it. He flipped tables over. He warned people that were mistreating others that there are serious consequences to their sin. And he did that without cursing them. How do you do that? How do you warn someone of eternal judgment over their soul without cursing them? He did it. How do you show hospitality, contributing to the needs of others, feeding five thousand people? The, the the list as you read it is an incredible synopsis of the life of Christ, who is our savior, and that's why I put that at the end. Because if we think of Christ as our example and we need to be like him in order to be saved, again we get off track right away. No, 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 we can't. <laughs> We've just now raised the bar to impossible again so remember to do this keep them in your mind but remember the one you're following is the one who's already saved you that this is to flow out of the truth that he's given himself for you and when you realize how much he's given to you that you and I would then have the desire to give in the same way that he gives verse 13 when he says to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality there's a distinction There's a love that we're supposed to have for each other. Paul's been writing most of the letter up until this point dealing with the problem in the church between the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. But Paul here is turning to the fact that the majority of us still function in our lives where we're interacting with people who aren't a part of our church family. We don't know if they believe what we believe about the world and the universe. And so how are we supposed to interact with them? Sometimes they're just strangers. The word hospitality in the Bible almost always has with it the connection of a stranger. So that if you think about it in our vernacular, what's the hospitality industry? If someone came to Akron, Ohio last night and they don't have any family, they have no connections, how are they gonna get food and where are they gonna sleep? Someone at a restaurant's gonna feed them and a hotel's gonna put them up for a night. That's the hospitality industry. It is the provisions made for the stranger the person who no one knows and they don't know anyone here, would they find a safe place here? Could they eat here? Could they sleep here? So he says, contribute to the needs of the saints, but don't misunderstand and think that that completely absorbs hospitality. There's an expectation on the part of our Savior that we would have a posture of generosity towards those we don't know. We don't know where they come from. We're not exactly sure why they're here. But we know that any human being needs a place to eat and needs a place to sleep. It's what you would want if you were in a strange place, isn't it? Have you ever been to a place where you don't know anyone? You don't actually know the language at all? You have no idea what the customs are? You then feel the uniqueness of you (laughs) in that moment. You never thought you were weird before. Now you know you are. Everyone else saw it. You didn't see it. But if you ever go in that environment, then you're brought home to the fact that there are so many things I just assume on an everyday basis that I'm now in a place I can't assume at all. Will people think of me as a threat? Will they just think of me as weird? Will anyone be kind to me? And Paul is saying that the posture of the entire Christian church is, yes, generosity towards one another, but don't think that that's hospitality. That's an additional thing of kindness towards strangers. Then he takes it a step further. What about the people that we know and we know they don't like us? What do we do with them? There's some people we just don't know. But then there's people we know and we know they don't like us. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. incredibly straightforward. And again, if you think of your own heart and say, do I want to do this? Man, most of the time I don't. But if I think of the life of Christ and I say, did he do this? Yeah, he did. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That doesn't mean do things for the lowly. It means associate with with the lowly the very same God who is content to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob right his person and character named by Abraham, Isaac and Jacob you're okay being called the God of them yeah and when Christ came he was okay being called from Galilee being from Nazareth what good has come out of Nazareth yeah that's where I'm from yeah that's where my parents are from You're going to sit with those people and have dinner with them? What are you you sitting with them? I mean, maybe make them a dinner at Thanksgiving and feel good about yourself and then walk away and make sure that for the rest of the year you have nothing to do with them. Now he'd say, no, 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 I actually associate with them. I'm sitting at the table with them. They're people too. An amazing level of generosity that he, the Savior, would associate with us. And then verse 17, Repay no one evil, for evil but give sight to do what is honorable in the sight of all <clears throat> so this is the love that we're called to as christians and here's why i say this is one of the most beautiful chapters because it's so practical we could never in the whole of our lives it. but it is also incredibly intimidating i i don't stand up here and at all pretend that i'm a model and example of romans chapter 12 But I want to keep Romans chapter 12 in my mind and in my heart and be transformed to become increasingly the type of person who finds it easier and easier to live according to it. Because the closer we are to it, the closer we are to the example of our Savior. And then we see the kinds of fruit that our Savior was able to exhibit in his world. So I want to end with this quote again. I know now you're probably even angrier than you were before in being hungry. But this is from J.I. Packer in Knowing God, written well over 30 years ago. He's talking about Christmas, and we are turning towards Christmas. He says, we talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by that than sentimental jollity on a family basis. But what we've said makes it clear that the phrase should carry, in fact, a tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year round. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I'll be more specific, so many of the soundest and most Orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by the other side. That's not the Christmas spirit, nor is it the spirit of those Christians. Alas, there are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice, comfortable Christian home in a, with nice Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice Christian ways and setting themselves up to avoid dealing with Christian or non-Christian those who are a part of a lesser class. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who like their master live the whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans giving time Trouble, care, and concern to do good to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is powerful today, that is sharp, and can discern the thoughts and intentions and motives of each of our hearts. We thank you that in your love for us in your willingness to save us, you also desire to keep us from being superficial or fake in anything that we do, but that you long for true goodness in us and true goodness from us to be extended to others. And that you desire us to do it out of joy, out of thankfulness for what you've done. And so we acknowledge, like the apostle, that for any hope of this to happen, we have to be completely transformed in the renewal of our minds, of what the good life is, of where joy comes from. And so we pray that you would do that. Help us to be able increasingly to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.